or tried to uh, with the children. Um, what the Uh, the person who uh, wrote this book, Richard Wall, what he says is that it's notoriously difficult uh, to figure out the structure and exact purpose of James. He said, it's notoriously difficult to figure out the structure and exact purpose of James, so much so that some have suggested it's no more than a random collection of thoughts. Chapter 1 works as an introduction to the rest of the letter or sermon. Beyond that, you're on your own a bit. What this diagram shows, sort of, is that these fragmented ideas do actually connect up. And that for the author, the issues of poverty, speech... Faith and works are all interconnected. And that's what we're trying to demonstrate uh, with the children. If you want to see the, the chart done properly, you can have a little of the book afterwards. That's there to enlighten you. But I found that um, uh, good fun and quite uh, helpful. So first of all, as we come to this uh, book, a bit of background information, which is basically the, uh, the results of my own research. Uh, the book is thought to have been uh, written as early as AD 45 and is probably, therefore, the oldest of the New Testament books. The author of the letter, that's been the subject of a lot of um, uh, speculation and uh, uh, entertainment, I suppose, for those of an academic uh, bent. At the, in uh, verse 1, J- James identifies himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a similar introduction as we read in the, uh, the book of uh, Jude, uh, who in his book calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ, but a brother of James. So it's thought that the author is James, one of um, the Lord's brothers. And um, probably the oldest, since there's a list in Matthew uh, 13... And uh, he comes at the top of it. It's interesting because at first he didn't believe in Jesus and even challenged and understood his mission. If you read John 7, you'll discover that. But later he became very prominent in the church in Jerusalem. He was one of the select individuals that the Lord appeared to after his resurrection. You find that in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul called him a pillar of the church in Galatians. Um, and uh, saw James on his first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion. When Peter was rescued from prison, he told his friends to tell James. And uh, it was clear that uh, James was a leader in the church. He was a leader in the Council of Jerusalem, that again we read about in Acts 15. So you can find out quite a bit about this person. It's generally accepted that he's the author of this book, although it's not known as a fact. It doesn't really matter who the author is. Of course, what matters is, is the content of the book, but it helps us to understand it, that, that here's a person with a Jewish background, a, a converted uh, uh, Jew, 
um, someone who had been close to the Lord. And um, he writes, obviously, from that standpoint. Now, the recipients are also identified in verse 1 as the 12 tribes scattered amongst the nations. Some people believe this refers to Christians in general, but 12 tribes would more naturally apply to Jewish Christians. And a clue to this is thought to be the Jewish nature of the letter, so that in, um, when we get to chapter 5 and verse 4, we'll see the expression is used, Lord Almighty, um, which is a, a, a Jewish way of um, referring to, to God. And these people were, were Christians. I mean, that's made uh, quite clear as we uh, read uh, through the book. There were probably believers from the early church of Jerusalem who, after Stephen's death, were persecuted and scattered um, all throughout the, the, sur- the surrounding countries. In Acts chapter 8, it tells us as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Syrian Antioch. Peter, when he writes his first letter, writes to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Again, it's the same sort of thing. These were the the people, uh, Jewish Christians, who had uh, been forced to flee their homes, scattered about the surrounding Uh, nations or surrounding parts of the Roman Empire uh, realistically and um, that's the background to the letter these people had undoubtedly uh, lost homes possibly possessions lots of reasons for I'm not sure I'm putting this in the right place but I'll put it somewhere out the way lots of reasons to fear to be lonely, to be angry, to be in poverty, to be in hardship. In fact, as James writes, trials of many kinds. And his, James's purpose in this letter is to encourage suffering Christians in the face of hardship and to strengthen them for faithful Christian living. James writes this letter as a a leader in the church. He writes the letter really as a pastor to instruct and encourage these dispersed people in the face of their difficulties. And uh, as you go through James, you will see that it's a very practical letter. That's why I said with the children, he's very concerned about rich and poor, really practical things, uh, how we ought to live. And um, for me, anyway, that way is, it, is what's attractive about the letter, that um, it's, it's a manual, if you like, for Christian living. There's some hard things to look at in there, um, some challenging things. And um, I trust that as we study it together as a church, we will see that it has a tremendous relevance for today. Some scholars have suggested that actually James contradicts Paul's writings because of his emphasis on works, really, because of his practicality. Well, I think this is a bit of a mischief, really, and uh, I don't want to sort of um, 
disrespect those of an academic bent, but sometimes you can have too much learning and um, you kind of go in the wrong direction. It matters if you, know, if you really read uh, the letter and think about it, you see that there's no contradiction or conflict at all between what Paul writes in Romans about being justified by faith and the truth that that very same faith is demonstrated by the lives that we live, that we have to work out our faith. Paul writes that. And uh, if you look at something like, if you uh, want to, you know, read something that's very brief, a few chapters, read Paul's letter to Titus, which is, uh, you know, equally as... um, punchy and practical um, uh, and yet is yet hinges on that uh, personal faith in Christ so that's a sort of background and introduction to the letter of James when the those in the groups come to study it you'll find there is a, a a chapter on that and it may repeat some of that and there may be some things there that I haven't covered I haven't looked at the the book. Well, I did years ago, but I haven't looked at the book before coming this um, uh, this morning because I think that would make it particularly fresh. So before we move on from verse one, and those of you who've been watching the clock, that's a bit worrying, isn't it? Ten minutes on verse one, and we're doing one to eighteen. Um, but there we are. That's how it goes. But before we do that. We're going to break and uh, sing another song together just to get you on your feet and to um, uh, break things up. 579, restore, O Lord, the honor of your name. It's okay, I'm very careful about cleaning my teeth this morning, so I shouldn't... uh, knock you out with the halitosis, but you do seem to be quite a way away. Now I'm glad that uh, the words we're going to study this morning come from James. Or, if we are amongst those who believe that all scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, from God. Because knowing of the trials and difficulties that many in our church face, it would be crass of me to suggest to you, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's a hard thing to say, isn't it? And I'm so glad that the scripture says it, because that enables me as the preacher, and it enables us, as fellow Christians, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, to say it to one another. But not in a way that suggests you could, you know, pull your socks up, get on with it. What can't be cured must be endured and such well-known phrases. No, that's not the idea. And that's not what James is writing either. But he's recognising that um, the people he was writing to uh, were certainly facing very many trials. And he's encouraging them to view those trials in a positive way. God-centered way rather than give in to any form of self-pity or indeed as a consequence to give up on God. Are there times that you've heard that? Perhaps in real trials you felt that. 
Well, that's understandable. That's human, isn't it? But God has given us uh, his book, the Bible, and it contains many challenging uh, things in it. And this, perhaps, is amongst one of the most challenging to be told that when it gets tough, the attitude you should have towards that is to rejoice in it rather than to um, feel sorry for yourself, as it were. Um, I've given you Sir Matthew Henry, the 18th century commentator in the past, and I couldn't resist this time, and I found something that was really good. This is what he says. Philosophy may instruct men to be calm under their troubles, but Christianity teaches them to be joyful because such exercises Proceed from love and not fury in God. Isn't that marvellous? All the way in the 18th century, 18th century language, but it kind of encapsulates it, doesn't it? Because it's not about our attitude to our difficulties, it's about our attitude to our God that enables us to deal with those difficulties. I'm really conscious this morning as I speak to you Uh, that in our small fellowship, folks are confronted with so much. There are those that are dealing with chronic illness. There are those who have anxieties. There are those with family and financial concerns. There are those with uh, situations I'm sure I'm not aware of. But I believe that these words are for all of us this morning. James writes about trials of many kinds. He's not suggesting that it are those that are let off, as it were. He's writing to people who are finding life uh, difficult. And I know that as I uh, look out at you and as I fill the seats with those of us who are not able to be here this morning, there are many who are facing uh, lots of difficulties. But I don't think it means that we're not allowed to be sad that we're not allowed to be anxious. No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it means that our attitude towards our circumstances is to be one of looking to our God. Because he's there for us. It's um, yesterday morning when the post arrived. Uh, I opened it and inside was um, a tear fund. We all get quite a lot of stuff from tear funds. I'm sure you do them from other places. And it was just significant that there was a little mat inside and the verse on the other side says this here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows but take heart I have overcome the world the words of our Lord as he was speaking uh, to the disciples when they were facing a difficult time he was going to be taken tried and crucified yes he was going to rise Again, but the Lord was looking beyond that and he knew that for them there were going to be difficulties. And as it pans out, you know, history and the scriptures teach us that they were martyred and persecuted, but he tells them, take heart because I have overcome the world. Now, may I be frank this morning and say that those words mean nothing if you don't know the author, if you don't know the person that says, I have overcome the world. The person of God's Son, our Saviour Jesus. If, 
he has no meaning or relevance in your life, then of course they're words. They're words in a, in a book. Um, however you might view it, we call it the Bible. We call it God's word. We, we believe it and, and trust it. But I, I know that that's not what everybody uh, feels. But without knowing that person, then these words have no relevance and you need to get to know him. So the reason for this view of our trials is that it's part of our Christian life experience that builds and molds us into a complete and mature child of God. That's what verses 3 to 4 are telling us. That if we have a faith in a person, Jesus, God's Son, this enables us to deal with those trials and difficulties in life. doesn't mean they'll go away necessarily, but it means that we're equipped to deal with them. And what's more, there's this idea here that it is a bit like going to the spiritual gym, if you like. That as we deal with these difficulties of life, it's, it's like taking an exercise. The word perseverance or patience is used here. It's the idea of endurance. And uh, those of you that are into this kind of thing, I'm not, I, I confess. Um, but, you know, um, uh, fitness type stuff, riding bikes and walking on belts that go nowhere and all that, lifting weights and all that kind of thing, that the more you do, you, although it's painful, I understand that the more you do, the easier it gets and the more your strength builds. And well done. Paul, when he writes to Timothy, he says, bodily exercise profiteth a little. But godliness is great gain. So we put it in perspective. But this here is rather like that. This is the idea that as we uh, endure and deal with these uh, difficulties, it builds us up. It turns us into a person that God wants us to be. A Christian who is fit and capable and able. The wonder of this is that we're not left to our own devices. Continuing with the analogy of the gym, if you like, we're told that we have a personal trainer. When we get to verse 5, we have a personal trainer, God himself. And uh, James writes, a God who gives generously and without favor. He gives to all. God's generous. He gives and he gives to all. I believe that the wisdom that is spoken of here, the wisdom that God is to uh, give us as we ask, is that knowledge of God's Son, Jesus. It's that faith and trust in him. In uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 8, Paul writes about God's wisdom as a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. This is God's plan of salvation through Christ, the promised Messiah, revealed in the New Testament and in New Testament times, but hidden away there in the old. If we have this wisdom, we will have repented of our sin and turned to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And as a consequence, 
we are enabled, we're equipped to endure the trials of life and to grow stronger as a consequence. Do you and I fit into that uh, category? Well, we and the Lord know. But this promise from God that he will be our personal trainer, if you like, that he will give us uh, the wisdom that we need, it comes also with a warning. In verses 6 and 8, we're warned to be real about the things of God, not to be double-minded. The idea here, we'll keep with the sporting theme, but we'll go to the race course now. The idea here is not to hedge your bets. Oh, yeah, church, that's, that's, a, that's a, a good thing. Yeah, the Bible, that's a good thing. Good living, that's a good thing. But um, I'll throw in a bit of philosophy uh, as well. Um, I don't know if I ever told any of you about um, my experience with the Quakers. Uh, no, I don't want to offend anybody here. Um, so I'll be careful in what I say. But one uh, Good Friday in Street, at the end of the uh, March of Witnesses, it's called, where all the churches got together, including the Quakers, um, we found ourselves in the Quaker meeting house because it was their turn that year. And so we uh, sat, and anybody could say anything. The only thing was, is when the two old elders at the front turned to each other and shook hands, that was a time for proceedings to conclude. <laughs> so you were in their hands as to how long you were stuck there listening to And that morning, on Good Friday morning, when our thoughts had turned to our Saviour on the cross, I heard all kinds of not well, we, because Jill was with me, we heard all kinds of nonsense about classical music, about walking the dog, about philosophy, about Nietzsche. I've never read him, I apologise. Uh, and all sorts of stuff until the pastor of our church at Street thankfully turned and reminded people of the power of the cross. And we were so relieved because we just sat there and heard all this stuff. Now, I don't want to disrespect anybody, but you know, we can talk and study and inquire, and there's so much stuff for us today, isn't there? On the internet in books, in e-books. There's just so much stuff. So much we can discover. But none of it has the answer. None of it will answer the difficulties of life other than when we turn to the person of God's Son, Jesus, who gave himself for us, who became sin for us. Do you know, this idea of, again, I don't want to disrespect academia and the like, but uh, sometimes we can know too much, or we can learn too much and know too little, I guess. Um, many uh, heresies and cults, the root of them, of course, is somebody coming up with a good idea or a different slant on uh, you know, the truths of the Bible. Can I share with you a personal observation this morning? 
When you read a book or listen to a preacher or a teacher, as I say, there's lots of stuff on the net. There are lots of people out there with lots to say and lots to help. Test it. Test it with this. And if it doesn't marry with that, then it isn't right. It's somebody else's own ideas and thoughts. That's why we have a Bible as a guide. This is where we find God's wisdom. Not in someone else's ideas. There's much that will sound plausible. Politicians refer to them as sound bites, don't they? It sounds good. Those gifted as orators and teachers and that, they can take almost anything and make it sound really great. That's what the gift is. But you remember Paul, in one of his letters, he says to them, I didn't come to you with oratory. I didn't come to you with fine words, but I came to you with the gospel, the truth of Jesus. And that's what we need. And that's what James is pointing uh, his uh, readers to in these verses. Does it stand the test of God's word? So we um, have got this, this wisdom and then when we move into verses 9 to 11, it seems to go off at a tangent. So we have to remind ourselves that James is still writing to the same people, all facing some sort of trial. But in material terms, some are better off than others. And so what James is doing, I believe, is just encourage the, the them to have a right perspective on their circumstances, whatever they might be. So if you are rich or you have a position or whatever, then be humble. And if you've been humbled by circumstances, then consider yourself rich. Because trials and difficulties are a great leveler. Um, on Friday, I'm sure some of you watched the news, and watched with horror those poor refugees in a boat, I think it was Friday, it might have been Thursday, uh, which turned over. Amongst those refugees, they'd all had to find the money to pay some smuggler an extortionate amount, but amongst those refugees were all sorts of people, some rich, some poor, some leaving a lot behind, some leaving not much behind. But, you know, their status as refugees is a tremendous leveller, isn't it? It matters not. They were all, sadly, in the same boat and in the same dire circumstances. So what what, uh, James is writing here, he's trying to say, well, look, really, you're all in the same boat, as it were. You're all part of the family of God, and we're not judged by our wealth our position or our status, but by our faith in Christ. And then this uh, follows on then with these lovely words of encouragement in verse 12. The encouragement is to persevere again, to endure because of a reward that has already been secured. For the Christian, for the person that knows and loves the Lord Jesus, a crown of life God has promised to those who love him. 
I don't think it's, it's sort of by chance that this appears in the middle of our little passage here. Because you see, it's the same in life, isn't it? Every now and then we need a little something to just put us back on course, to just encourage us a little bit, just something to give us a lift. And so James here is giving them a little lift, a little encouragement and saying virtually that the, you know, the battle's already been won, the crown of life. Well, it's waiting for you. It's just waiting for you. God has promised it to you. If you love him, it's there. You just have to go through whatever uh, life throws at you, as it were, um, first. And then having sort of put them up there, it brings them down with a bang, doesn't he? And uh, we get to sort of the nitty-gritty of life. We, we get to, uh, in verses 13 and 15, uh, a part that perhaps some of us would rather wasn't here. These are, these are the little bits that we'd like to perhaps cut out of the Bible. Uh, and cut and paste them some, somewhere else, as it were. Because now we have this vexed subject of temptation. And as I read these verses, a thought that came to my mind that the key here is to know God. And to know yourself. It's about truth, isn't it? It's it's about being true about ourselves. There are two people that know Paul Pace. Paul Pace and the Lord. Somebody over there who knows me quite well. But the truth is, for all of us, who knows us really? And uh, so James, when he's writing here, he's sort of saying, well, you know, Don't delude yourself. Don't make excuses. It's easy to imagine for these people that when things got difficult, when rather than being blessed as the world would judge as they look on uh, for your faith, you have troubles instead, that you would be tempted to sin in some way. That that would constitute an excuse for perhaps slipping off the path, as it were, for perhaps giving in uh, to something, perhaps not being so diligent about something. Yes, we have a God who loves us. God is love. But he's also a righteous and holy God. How could he be otherwise? It wouldn't be God. We can't view our trials as a reason or excuse to give in to temptation. I, I looked through Mission Praise. I couldn't find it, but do you recall that old hymn? Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some other to win. Fight manfully onward, dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus, he will carry you through. Be grateful he didn't sing it. But um, it goes on. It's an old hymn, you can look it up. But it gets it right. The thing about some of these hymns is that... They're not just poetry. That the people that, that, that wrote them, I can't remember the man's name now, um, they had good theology. They had good practical Christianity in there. Their faith shone through the hymns. And so um, he goes on to say, shun evil companions, bad language, disdain. God's name hold in reverence, nor take it in vain. Be thoughtful and earnest, kind-hearted and true. Look ever to Jesus. He will 
carry you through. It's practical, isn't it? But it's right, and it's everything that the Scriptures uh, teach us. And he concludes the last verse of the hymn, To him that overcometh, God giveth a crown. Through faith we will conquer, though often cast down. He who is our saviour, our strength will renew. Look ever to Jesus. He will carry you through. That's just what James was writing. It's all there, encapsulated there. So if you go away with nothing this morning, go away with that hymn. Go look it up. Look it up on YouTube. I think Pat Boone used to sing it. Um, But this reminds me, you know, that we are responsible for our sin. We can't make someone else responsible. I'm reminded of Cain and Abel. Do you remember, don't don't you, that uh, they both made a sacrifice? Abel understood that sacrifice meant a life given. It meant blood shed. And his sacrifice was acceptable. But Cain, he gave God of his labors and everything, but it wasn't what God wanted. And so he had a sulk. And as he sulked and contemplated what to do, the Lord speaks to him. And this is what he says. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, I've told you before that I, my mind works very often in pictures. And I so see that. I so see that. And James writing here to these people, that's what he's saying, you know. Sin crouches at our door. It's not that far away. I mean, it looks... If someone came this morning and looked at us all here, we're well-dressed, we're all clean, we scrub up nicely. and You know, why ever would the word sin be used in a place like this? But sin is a fact of life. We fall and fail. You see, Cain's eventually sinned. He murdered his brother. And that act wasn't an involuntary act. It wasn't caused by influences he could not control. What happened was just what is described by James in verses 14 to 15. We cannot make anybody responsible for our actions other than ourselves. Oh, I know sometimes circumstances um, you know, put us in positions where we might have to act in a certain way. Uh, but uh, when we choose to sin, that's what we do. We choose uh, to sin. Paul explains it uh, to the Roman uh, Christians in Romans in this way. In chapter 7, verse 23, 25, he says, But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. There's a conflict going on here. 
And we're promised a conflict. The Christian life is not meant to be uh, a life of ease. We have a battle to fight. Remember uh, our studies in Ephesians. And Ephesians 6 makes that quite clear. Yes, we are loved of God. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit with a certain hope in Christ for eternity. And yet whilst here on earth, we're engaged in a conflict between our two natures. Being a Christian results in numerous blessings as explained in verses 16 to 18. Our God is unchanging. He's faithful. He's the giver of the gifts. He's the source of every good thing. And the greatest gift is that of his son Jesus, through whom we have new life. The life that enables us to live in the way that we've been speaking of this morning. And so there's a sense in which we are a new creation. People marked out for God. It's great to end on a positive note. As we've seen from these verses, we're not promised a life of ease, but if we are faithful and persevere, we will know a life of joy. And these verses lead us on. They lead us on into this coming week and how we live and cope with what lies before us. And they lead us on into our studies uh, into James in the coming weeks. But the question really, I guess, at the end of this morning is where are you? Where am I today? Am I, despite whatever life's difficulties there are, am I one who is willing to just uh, take on the challenge that God holds out to persevere for him? Or have I given in? Or perhaps, does this not mean very much to me today that they're just words in a book called the Bible? As I said earlier on, the challenge is that you need to know the author and the subject, the person of God's Son, Jesus. We're going to um, 